The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone, so let's, uh, let's carry on and uh, see what the uh, Q&As uh, do, uh, see what comes out of this. Let's get started straight away. Uh, so we have question number one. During walking meditation, I saw, I saw a bee getting attacked by a spider. Uh, the bee was caught on the spider's... Uh, uh, something? Spider something? Web. Web, that's what it says. That's right. Yeah, okay, thank you. <laughs> You're very good at deciphering handwriting. That's very good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't sure if I should save the bee or be kind to the spider since it is, it's his food. What should I do next time? Thank you, Ajahn. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good question. It's often, you know, what you have to do is you have to look at your intention. And it is intention that really decides whether something is good or bad in Buddhism. So sometimes you can be kind of, if you get upset with a with spider, you think, go away, evil spider, yeah? Then it may be a bad intention. But if you are motivated by compassion to the bee, then it can be a good intention. So it really depends on the circumstance. But a lot of the time you realize that maybe the bee, it flies off, and then it flies into another spider's nest, yeah? Just around the corner. And uh, sometimes this is the nature of the animal world. It's pretty harsh, yeah. And you cannot really, you can only do so much. And the chances of these insects meeting a brutal end is very high because that is the nature, very often, of this kind of of this realm of insects. So there isn't really any right answer to that question. Yeah, anything can be right, anything can be wrong, depending on your motivation and where you're coming from. So look more at your motivation. Why are you doing something here? Yeah. And make sure that you are coming from a good place. So. And then you are, you should be, uh, you should be fine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <coughs> Please teach us a method or technique to promote the awareness of non-self. Uh, thank you very much. Okay, teaching the promoting the awareness of non-self. Um, so the um, the non-self teaching is a very profound teaching, uh, and it is something that you take with you almost all the way on the path, stage by stage. You kind of uncover the idea of non-self. Uh, uh, but there are a number of ways you can use this practically in the kind of in your ordinary meditation or your ordinary life as a Buddhist. Uh, and um, one of the uh, ways of using the non-self technique, yeah, yeah, one of the to me is very profound. Probably we'll talk more about this later on. But it is the idea how to deal with ill will, yeah, and uh, anger and these kind of things in life. And uh, very so easy to get upset when other people do nasty things towards us. Yeah, <laughs> it's very very hard not to get upset sometimes. Uh, and uh, because and one of the reasons is because we are very self-focused. Yeah, they're being nasty towards me. Yeah, it's, it's about me, me, me. Yeah, <laughs> that's the problem. And uh, we feel personally kind of um, attacked by a person who is not being kind to us. Uh, 
And this is where the idea of non-self comes in very, very handily. Uh, because it's important to remember that uh, the other person doesn't normally attack you. It's not actually about you at all. Uh, yeah, it's really about the other person. Uh, why are they doing what they're doing? They're doing it for all kinds of reasons, internal to themselves. Uh, they have a certain conditioning, they have a certain background, they have a certain way of living their life, they may be from past life experience, who knows where these things come from. And that conditioning sometimes comes out. And if you happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, you will have to bear the brunt of that conditioning of the other person. But it's not about you really, it feels personal, but actually it's not personal at all. It's just the other person, just you know, being who they are. So remember that when someone treats you in a bad way or they say something nasty, and this happens all the time. Yeah, people are not, I mean, words come out of people's mouths quicker than they can think. So people always say nasty and unpleasant things. You can't expect that to happen. Even in monasteries, not so often, but even in monasteries sometimes you might hear unpleasant things, but usually not so much. But so you, you, Remember that, yeah? The other person is just, it's their conditioning coming through. It's not about you, it's about them. And if the bad things are coming out of another person, you should have compassion for them. Because everyone knows that saying something bad or treating someone badly, it actually, it feels bad. You know it's bad for yourself when you do that. If I say something bad to another person, I feel a bit rotten afterwards. Uh, it's like I'm dragging myself down. I'm creating bad karma for myself. Do I want to do that? No. I w if I possibly could, I would want to be kind all the time. But sometimes I fail. Yeah, and that failure is I have compassion for myself because I'm not able to overcome my bad habits. Uh, my bad, the way that I've been conditioned, I can't deal with it because it's just so ingrained in me. The words come out before I can, you know, control myself or whatever. And so I have compassion for myself. Oh, why is this happening? Because of bad conditioning, <laughs> bad habits from the past. And please think the same when anyone else treats you badly. Remember, it's their conditioning. They probably want to be kind. Because we all know that kindness leads to happiness for ourselves and others. We know that deep down, but we can't stop ourselves. We can't help ourselves doing silly things sometimes. That's the right way of thinking about the other person. It's a non-self thing. They're not doing it against you. They're not doing it because they're bad. They're doing it because the conditioning, the non-self conditioning. Conditioning is the opposite of self. Yeah? It means that we are this blob of conditioned phenomena coming together in the present moment and then leading to a result, which can be bad conduct. Then you look at people another way. You start to look at people with a sense of kindness and care, and you don't worry so much about yourself. And actually, that's very beautiful when we don't worry so much about ourselves, because this feeling of self-concern is actually very oppressive, because it creates this small little world of me. I am here, and the rest of the world is against me. <laughs> then you feel very vulnerable, and you feel very afraid, because this, your, your me, me, me is like me against all those elements outside. But if you don't think so much about you anymore, if you let go of that sense of self, Actually, you feel also less fearful. You feel less kind of isolated in the world. And your mind kind of expands outwards that are being contracted within yourself. It expands out to the whole world. And it embraces people rather than being antagonistic to other people. And that's very 
powerful when that happens. It's very beautiful. And it, uh, so this non-self idea, using it in this way, it leads to seeing other people in a more realistic way as conditioned beings who are not really in charge of themselves. And it starts to lead you to see yourself in the same way, whereby you're less concerned about yourself. That's also a, a kind of non-self thing, yeah? Yeah, when you're less concerned about yourself. This is a way of using non-self to overcome not being so upset when other people do something which is not nice. Yeah, it's a, And this is actually straight from the suttas. This is a sutta I teach usually every year on these retreats, but I haven't included this year because I wanted to just have something a little bit different. I can't do the same every year. Actually, I could, but anyway, I'm, I'm not going to do that. So this is one way of have, using the idea of non-self. Another idea which is very useful is to notice what happens in meditation practice. And what you will notice is that as you become more peaceful and calm, as the thinking is dying down, there is also less self there. Thinking is very often an expression of the sense of self. Yeah, it is often we are kind of chatting in our mind. This is us kind of making ourselves exist. Or we are, want to chat because we want to def somehow feel that we are alive. Or we want to argue in our mind with somebody. I don't know what, you know, all kind of thoughts are possible. But it is often very much related to the sense of self. And as the thinking dies down, that is actually an expression of the reduction in the sense of self. So notice that. And notice what is better. And you will find that it's far preferable not to have that sense of self. When the mind is peaceful, it's so much more, it's much more delightful. Yeah, it's a much more beautiful experience. So notice that beautiful experience when the mind starts to become peaceful and you start to understand the power of non-self, the power of not having this annoying ego, which always is kind of get there to disturb you and make your life miserable. <laughs> and, and, you know, Holds all kinds of troubles uh, all the way through. So you notice that in your meditation. And then you start to understand, actually, non-self is good. What a wonderful thing it is. We, we kind of, we, we try to kind of, you know, we, 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 we tend to uh, think of the wonderful self and how, how the self is such a great thing. But actually, this kind of, the ego is actually a, is a nuisance. It's a problem. And notice that in a meditation and you start to understand why the understanding of non-self, seeing through that, actually is something marvelous and powerful. And uh, then you are on the right track. Of course, it goes a long way. This is just like the very initial thing. yeah. And it goes very, very deeply, this idea of non-self. But you start to understand why understanding non-self actually is not scary at all. It's the exact opposite. It's something very beautiful, huh? because it may seem scary. Huh? Yeah, when you think about it intellectually, it seems scary. But when you experience it, actually, it's beautiful. Huh? And this is uh, the kind of techniques of of thinking about this in the right way. Huh? And um, so, how this is how you pro promote the awareness of non-self. Yeah, gradually letting go of this uh, ego inside, uh, which is so problematic. Yeah? Okay. <clears throat> um, 
Dear Ajahn, thank you so much for holding this retreat and providing this space for spiritual growth. Could you please outline how to do walking meditation? How does letting go happen with walking meditation and where do we place our awareness with metta? Um, yes, uh, it is very useful to do a bit of walking meditation. Uh, because after sitting for a while, you get a bit sore, your knees get a bit fed up, or you, or if you even if you don't have sore knees, after a while you kind of come out of your meditation naturally, uh, and you want to do something else. You can't just sit all the time. It's good for you, physically good for you. Get a bit of exercise, walking back and forth. Uh, so it's a good thing to do. And uh, I would say if you do. Samatha meditation, watching your breath while you are seated here, then do something else while you do the walking meditation. Walking meditation is very well suited for contemplation, yeah, doing some kind of reflection on the Dhamma, uh, you know, think about the suttas that were talked about, what do they mean to you, uh, reflect on a particular theme, do some death contemplation. Uh, all of these things can be done during walking meditation. Metta can be done during walking meditation, especially the early stages of metta, not the later stages, because then it gets too profound, but the early stages, you can do that during walking meditation. But one of the things you can do is just to not do anything very much. Just walk back and forth, yeah? enjoy the peace, get yourself a bit of exercise, and just watch what happens in your mind. Yeah, one of the most important things to do on the path of meditation is to overcome the hindrances. Uh, these are the things that block you from going deeper. Uh, so even though you may already be going reasonably well for a lot of people, they meditate, they come to a certain level of peace, uh, it doesn't go any further. Uh, it's like they come to a plateau and they stop at that certain point. So why is that? Well, it's because you are holding on to something, uh, something you can't let go of. Uh, so one of the important things is to know ourselves really well. What are the issues that you have? What are the defilements that you have? Yeah, is there anyone you have a bit of upset with? And that upset, even though it may not manifest all the time, it will maybe sometimes be at the back of your mind. It will block you from going deeper. Yeah, so make sure you have compassion and metta for everyone in the whole world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes they, in meditation, we talk about having this idea of metta. You know, typically, according to the Visuddhi Magga, you have metta for yourself, then you have metta for your, your mates, <laughs> then you have metta for the neutral person, then you have metta for your enemy. But actually, metta for your enemy doesn't make any sense, yeah? Because if you have metta for them, you're not the enemy anymore. So the whole idea is kind of weird. Actually, you shouldn't have any enemies. Yeah, as Buddhist practitioners, we shouldn't really, that, that should be, Banned the idea of enemies. If you have an enemy, you're already approaching the world in the wrong way. So find out if there's anyone inside of you who is still a little bit your enemy. Yeah, or someone you find difficult. So have compassion. At the very least, if you can't have metta for them, have compassion for them. And just be aware of that. Yeah. And there's always going to be people in our life that we find more difficult. And difficult is okay. But if someone is difficult, Compassion is the right thing to have. So know your mind and just walk back and forth and see what happens inside of your mind. See what your attachments are. 
Somebody was telling me today that uh, you know they have a lot of attachment to family and and things, uh, and uh, you know they, sometimes you, in COVID times it's hard to visit your family because of uh, travel restrictions and all, all of this. Uh, and uh, that's one thing to remember. Yeah, what are what are our attachments in the world? Uh, and the Buddha gave this beautiful answer to one of the things he says we should always contemplate is that everything that is dear and pleasing to me will be separated from me, will become otherwise. Yeah, so everything that is dear and pleasing to you, everything will become separated from you. It's a very, it's a very strong teaching, but it's true, right? We know it is true. And when you know that, just that knowledge is enough to make you pull back a little bit and say, wait a minute, why am I holding on to these things? That's what the Buddha, what the Buddha to be saw when he, before his awakening, so I'm attaching to all of these things in the world, yeah? But I'm still, I already have a problem of dying myself and I'm attaching to all of these other things. Let me look for the solution to the problem of life somewhere else. I'm not gonna solve anything if I attach to all of these things. Let me pull back from that. So just that recollection, just the understanding that everything dear and pleasing to you must become otherwise. Maybe it seems sad in the beginning, but actually, it is something that we have to face. If you don't face it, uh, it's going to become really difficult down the line. Uh, yeah. So just reflecting on it, reminding yourself already, makes you stand back a little bit. Uh, and then you start to understand the urgency, the sangvega of the Buddhist path. Yeah? Because that Buddhist path is ultimately what makes us independent. Uh, this is what allows us to stand back from things more. Why? Because we are more self-sufficient. When we have the, when we build up a reservoir of happiness within ourselves through this practice, it means that we don't rely on external things so much for meaning, for purpose, for happiness, for contentment, and all of these things. And then you become more independent in your life. That's good. It's not bad. Yeah. It doesn't mean make you callous. It doesn't make you hard and rough person who nobody can deal with. It does the opposite. Because when you're a bit more detached, you have more ability to see what is really beneficial for others rather than what is beneficial for yourself. If you have a lot of attachment, really what it comes down to is that you are also concerned about what is beneficial for yourself. This is what you see in walking meditation. Walk back and forth. Be aware of your attachment. See where your mind goes. What are the things you tend to think about? Okay, you think about your family. You think about work. You think about problem solving. Is it really worthwhile? Are those problems ever going to be solved anyway? No, they're not never going to be solved. Why think about them? Okay, maybe you solve one, another one pops up, and it goes on forever. You've already been doing this for innumerable lifetimes. Forget about that whole world. Let go a little bit of the external world. That external world is only wars and climate change and COVIDs, yeah, and then some and, and refugees and financial cracks, and it's just endless problems in that world. Go inwards instead. Find real meaning inside. This is what you learn about yourself during walking meditation. Don't have to focus so much. Sometimes you need to stop focusing. You've been sitting here focusing on your breath all the time. You need a break from focus, for goodness sake, right? <laughs> it's nice to be able to do something else. So do some reflections. Do something different. Or just walking back and forth, do absolutely nothing. Just enjoy being here, being peaceful, 
rejoice in being part of this wonderful BSV community. Yeah, marvelous people keeping the eight precepts voluntarily, abstaining from all of these things that people in the world want to do. Isn't that great to have friends like that? Wonderful people who live with kindness and live with care. You are so lucky to have this kind of community around you. Hooray! <laughs> and then you sit down afterwards and wow, your meditation is so much better because you're rejoicing in all the goodness of the people around you. This is how to do it. Uh, yeah, This is what you can do in walking meditation. If you're really desperate to do more focusing in your meditation, you can focus on your feet. And it's kind of a traditional way of doing samatha meditation while you do walking meditation. So you can do that if you really, really feel like it. Uh, and then what you do is you just walk back and forth uh, and you just feel your feet. Uh, yeah, You keep the focus on your feet as it touches the ground uh, and you can feel the feet every more and more of that step uh, as the pressure increases, as you let go of the pressure, as you move the leg forward, uh, back to the other leg, back and forth like that. Uh, and you walk maybe a certain distance, 20, 30 paces. Uh, Turn around mindfully, feel your feet going back again. And you can feel, just like you're experiencing the breath, you can experience the feet in the same way. I wouldn't recommend doing breath meditation while you're walking. It's just too, too refined. It's too difficult. It's not really the point. Breath meditation should be done sitting down. Anapanasati Sutta begins with you sit down and you watch the breath. It doesn't begin with you walk and then you watch the breath. So following that one, that's what we should be doing, in my opinion. So... Uh, yeah. Look at yourself. See what you need. Don't become a meditation robot. I must do this. Don't do that. Walk, feel the feet. Ding, ding, ding. What actually? What do I want to do now? Yeah. <laughs> what What do I need? That is kind of the best way to think. Okay. I hope that makes a little bit of sense. It's a bit of a random answer, but anyway, well. Uh, Carry on. Respected Ajahn. Oh, that's what I'd like to hear. Okay. <laughs> Many thanks for your teachings. You mentioned in the session today about some teachers, especially in the West, who think that um, they are enlightened. Lots of Dhamma teachers have uh, free for their workshops, have fees for their workshops courses, which is also used to sustain the teacher's livelihood. Since they devote their life to Dhamma, presumably they are not working, working otherwise, but working otherwise, right? But still living in the material world. Buddhist teachings are traditionally offered free. I can understand the need to administration fee fees to stay uh, and meals but some of the retreats especially in the US are unaffordable after payment of essential charges what is your take on this uh, venerable many thanks um, yes it is very common you arrive to charge for things and many of these teachers they make their livelihood from these things there's nothing really wrong with that. Yeah, I mean, you can't really, as long as they present the teachings in the right way, yeah, and they do things and people are willing to pay, good, yeah, it's okay. I think one of the things, though, is that people often underestimate uh, the difference between a monastic and a lay teacher. Yeah, a lay teacher is someone who is very often still involved in the world. Very often they will have a husband or a wife. They will still 
play around a lot in the realm of sensually, sensual pleasures. Uh, and I think there is an, as a lack of uh, appreciation of the idea of being celibate, living a celibate life, living a life where you really withdraw completely from those pleasures of the world. Not completely, because you still, I still enjoy my lunch. <laughs> So, uh, but enough, yeah, to reduce those desires in that world. Uh, people don't underestimate that. Uh, and there is a reason why the Buddha laid down the celibate life. Yeah, this is kind of the idea of monasticism. The Buddha would not have established a monastic order unless it actually was powerful. Uh, and very commonly in the West, people think, yeah, but I want to have both worlds. I want to enjoy the kind of the central place and I want to enjoy meditation. Uh, but there's a profound misunderstanding there of the nature of meditation. Meditation is a process of renunciation. You cannot, you can have both only so far. There comes a point where the two paths start to separate dramatically. And the reason for that is very simple to understand. The reason is because to really go deep in meditation, you have to let go of the external world. If you enjoy the external world a lot, if you have attachments in that world, you will not be able to be attached and let go at the same time. Because that's an oxymoron, yeah? Being attached and letting go. These are two opposite things. Attached means you're holding on to that world. Letting go means you are letting go of that world. So if you are enjoying that world a lot, when your mind starts to become to be starts to become peaceful, your mind will reject and would stop you from going deeper. Why? Because it is attached to the senses. This is a, so there's one part of your mind going out, another part of it wants to go in. And if you are attached to the external one, you won't be able to let go beyond a certain point. So there is a fundamental misunderstanding of this. And if you want to let go of that external world completely, if you want to gain a state of samadhi, full samadhi as in the jhanas where you let go of the external world utterly you cannot have any attachments in that world it's impossible at least temporarily you cannot have any attachments the more you build up attachments in that world the less will be your ability to achieve samadhi they are diametrically, diametrically opposed to each other and there seems to be a misunderstanding about this a lot of people don't seem to understand what this really is about and this is why I would say, although lay teachers are great, it's good to have lay teachers. Sometimes lay teachers can add things that monastic cannot add because lay teachers may know how to deal. How do you deal with a wife and husband? Yeah, <laughs> they may be able to tell you that. We don't really know. Yeah, we have. I've never been married. I have no idea how to deal with a deal with a wife or a husband or whatever. Yeah, no idea how to deal with your kids, how to deal with work, how to deal with the problems of life. They can maybe help you more in those areas, uh, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe they can, maybe they can't. But so, and sometimes they can be very articulate, some of these lay teachers. Yeah, they may be able to express the Dhamma in ways that are very nice in some ways. So there is certainly room for that. And I think we should encourage lay teachers who are good to, to teach. But it's important to understand that the deepest kind of meditation, the awakening experiences, are far more likely to happen as a monastic than as a layperson. Unless you live lay life in a very special way. If you are 
living by yourself, not in a relationship, and you kind of have a very special level, then there is maybe the possibility that you will achieve very deep meditation. But generally speaking, the chances are much greater that these things will be available for you in monastic life. Yeah, there is a difference there. And this is what I think often is not really appreciated. And I think this is the weakness, especially in a place maybe like the United States, where there is very few monastics. I'm sometimes really worried about the U.S. It's kind of the, some of the weakest, uh, the place of the least monasticism yeah, in, in the world. Uh, in the United States, and it's kind of bad. Some of the large meditation centers are just lay centers, uh, yeah, and I think jeepers. Uh. So uh, I was actually recently invited to go to the U.S. I might, maybe I will go to the U.S., see if I can tell them all of this, uh, yeah. <laughs> see what they say when I go over there. Or oh, they never, never invite me back again after that. That would be it, that would be the end. <laughs> but uh, so, uh, yeah, so you can see the distinct. We need to make that distinction. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with it, uh, but it's important also to know why monasticism is very, actually, really matters for Buddhism. If we have no monasticism anymore, if that dies out in Buddhism, Buddhism is going to go down very quickly here, yeah? because in a sense, monasticism, when lived well, is an expression of that awakening. Yeah? The, the way we live is the way that ideally an awakened person will live. It's a similar kind of idea. Yeah? So it is almost like this lifestyle is an expression of those qualities. It doesn't mean that all monks are enlightened. Far from it. Only a very small amount of monks and nuns are enlightened. But still, it is the kind of lifestyle which approximates to those insights and that understanding here. Yeah? So thank you for that question. I'm very glad you asked that because uh, I think it is a very important point. Uh, all right, dear Ajahn, can you please explain the relationship between consciousness and awareness? Uh, I heard that you lose awareness when you sleep and you have the complete awareness when you reach the higher stages of meditation. Uh, so the consciousness and awareness are essentially the same thing, yeah? yeah? As with words, it always depends on how you use words. Words really only have meaning as far as you give them meaning. But when you are conscious, it means that, yeah, I guess, I guess you can have very kind of, I guess awareness often means a very clear consciousness, perhaps. Maybe that's one of the distinctions, yeah? So you can say that uh, there that awareness and consciousness, they have a lot of different strengths. Uh, but the awareness you have in meditation is like a clear awareness uh, where you know what is going on. It's like your consciousness brightens up. Uh, and the kind of awareness you have when, when you're in a coma, for example, is a very low kind of awareness. It's so low that you don't even know. You think you were unconscious when you come out afterwards. Uh, but most people in comas actually seem to have some kind of consciousness, some kind of awareness, but it's a very low level, and you are not, you are not really aware of it. And there are experiments that have shown that. But consciousness awareness, basically the same thing. It means the ability to know what is going on. Yeah, that's really what it is. So just different words, really, for the same thing. And... 
Yeah, I'm not sure if there's much more to be said about that. I'm not sure if I have answered your question, but uh, please feel free to try again. Awareness when you sleep. You don't lose awareness when you sleep because there's still usually a very kind of um, subtle awareness there, yeah, subtle consciousness. So if you someone comes and pokes you, you wake up, yeah. Even if you're in deep sleep, you wake up because there is some underlying awareness that allows you to feel that feeling, yeah. So you're not completely gone. It's just that it's much more subtle. I know there have been experiments done with people who sleep and they have kind of woken them up at all kinds of times. And even when they are in very deep sleep, they often uh, have some memory of some very subtle dreams, uh, different kind of dreams that occur in deep sleep compared to REM sleep. Yeah, REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, these kind of things. But there always seems to be some, there's always some consciousness and awareness there. Higher stages of meditation is a very different kind of awareness. That's when awareness becomes very, very powerful. Sati becomes very strong. Sati, mindfulness, is also just a word for awareness, really. So sati is when consciousness becomes bright and clear. And you are know what is going on very clearly. more powerful your sati is, your awareness is, the more ability you have to see what is going on. Powerful awareness gives you like this ability to really understand things properly here. Okay, so uh, next one. Dear Ajahn, much gratitude for your invaluable teachings. Can Can a person suffering from cancer, chronic illness and pain, debility, and vicious personal circumstances, cheapest, this doesn't sound too good, take consolation in the fact that at least he is exhausting his bad karma. Does negative karmic debt get washed away if someone happens to be sick and the result in decreased rebirth and samsara? Many thanks. Um, This idea of exhausting your bad karma is a Jain idea. It's not really a Buddhist idea. I know that there are some Buddhist teachers who teach this, and frankly, I think it is a wrong teaching. That's my personal opinion. I don't think there's any basis for that in the suttas at all, that you can exhaust your bad karma. Instead, what we should be doing, instead of exhausting our bad karma, we should be building good karma. That's what we really should be doing. So, and the, so the consolation should not be in the fact that you are exhausting the good karma, exhausting the bad karma, <laughs> The consolation should be in the fact that you are living well and you're making good karma. You're building up a good future. That's what the consolation should be in. So you may have very difficult circumstances, but if despite that you're able to live well, yeah, then you know your future is going to be bright. And this is such an important point. You know, um, people come to us these days and they ask, well, what about the war in Ukraine? I feel really bad about that. I feel terrified. Is this going to spread out to the rest of the world? Are we heading for a nuclear disaster? Is it going to be World War III? I don't know. Maybe there is. Who knows? It's uncertain. Maybe there will be World War III. Maybe not. Maybe there will be nuclear strikes. Maybe not. I hope not. But hope doesn't really get you very far. Yeah, Hope is kind of, uh, it may be, because humanity does crazy things. We have seen that already. So the point is, uh, the world is out of control. 
and all we can really do and the way we create our future is not by making the world right or by thinking the world should be in a certain way. The way we create our future is by living well now. That's how you create your future. And if you live well, you're going to have a good future. That is absolutely certain. This is what the Buddha is teaching. It's not about exhausting your old karma. It's about building new karma. That is what it is about. Because probably you have, you have so much bad karma stored up that if you're going to exhaust it, you're going to, it's never going to take an end. And then you make more in the meantime, and then you kind of just carries on. Yeah, <laughs> this is the problem. Because sometimes if you suffer a lot, you end up making more bad karma because you suffer. You don't know what to do with yourself, and then you do stupid things. So make sure that when you suffer. Don't become deluded. Remember the Dhamma, and then the Dhamma will carry you through the difficult times. Make good karma. Be kind. Even if no one else is kind to you, be kind to others. Hard to do, but it can be done, and people do that. People come through very difficult times, sometimes as better people as a consequence of the difficulties, because there's a lot to be learned from hard times. Then you are really doing the right thing. Okay. We, dear Ajahn, in this morning's teaching, it was mentioned that soon after going forth, living withdrawn, diligent, keen, and resolute, they realize the supreme end of the spiritual path in this very life. Could you please elaborate on what do the underlined words mean? The underlined words are withdrawn, diligent, keen, and resolute. Are they the same as the Eightfold Path we are referring to all the time for enlightenment? Yes, it is basically referring to the Noble Eightfold Path. That is correct. And uh, you could say that uh, uh, it is a lot of this will have to do with right effort and right mindfulness, because this is, we're here talking about mostly the monastic life. I mean, it applies to lay life as well, but uh, here it kind of starts off with going forth, right? Uh, so withdrawn here is vupakatta, um, uh, is that what it is? Or it's patisalana, I'm not sure. It's one of those Pali words which means that you withdraw from society. I can't remember now what the Pali is. Uh, so that means that you are, you live in a kuti, in the forest somewhere, ideally. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why we go on meditation retreats, because it gives us a chance to withdraw a little bit. Uh, it's a shame that we can't go to the forest lodge down in Anglesey because it's actually quite a beautiful place for the meditation retreats, yeah? But uh, we do what we can, given the circumstances. That's why we withdraw a little bit uh, to the forest to kind of get us out of the ordinary life. Uh, so you are withdrawn. That's where meditation happens. Uh, when you read the suttas, you can see this in many places that uh, uh, meditation starts off with, yeah, it says you go to uh, the forest, uh, the root of a tree or the foot of a tree, or to uh, an empty hut, sunyagara, yeah, this is what it, how it often starts off with, or it has an even longer description, which is a, a pile of straw and a ravine, all of these kind of things, but the usual one is a foot of a tree, the forest, the foot of a tree, what is it, empty space, and then there's three things there, foot of a tree, empty hut, and what's the last one? Empty space? Can't remember. Anyway, one of those. It means you are withdrawn, secluded from things. This is one of the requirements for real meditation practice. Yeah, It's a very high bar. 
really med deep meditation. <laughs> so that's with the drawn, right? You draw back from the world to allow the mind to kind of dry out from all the sensual impingements in life. Diligent here is um, is uh, apamada, yeah. So you are uh, apamada. Basically means uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates as heedful. Yeah, heedful. What does that mean? It means that you are careful. It means that you are circumspect. It means that you reflect properly before you do something. But to do something bad, okay, stop. Don't do the bad. Yeah, that's that's kind of heedful. You 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 take proper account of how to live your life in the, in a good way. Every moment to moment. Yeah, this is the idea of apamada. Yeah, diligent here. It's it's okay, but diligent means like you're working really hard, and like an ant is really diligent. Yeah, but you don't want to just be like an ant because ants they just well they work really hard, but there's not much kind of a reflection going on in the ant's life. Yeah, it's just kind of work, 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 and then die, and then reborn as an ant, work, 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 die, reborn as an ant, work, 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 die, and on and on like that for a long, long time. So it's more to do with care, being careful about things. So keen here is the word atapi. And the word atapi is similar to a uh, word like padana, vayama, virya, yeah? samma padana, samma vayama. This is right effort on the Buddhist path. This is effort. Virya is what you find in the seven factors of awakening, the satta sambhojanga. You find virya is the energy of the mind. And this is what you get as you start to meditate. And the meditation becomes powerful. You get the bliss, the mindfulness becomes strong. The energy arises. And the difference between effort and energy is that energy is the natural energy of the mind. The effort is what you apply in order to make go forward on the path. It's a little bit different. One is the application, one is the energy. Keen here is a bit of both. Because we're here dealing with a word which is kind of squeezed. It is found in Samasati. So right in the Noble Effort Path you have Samma, you have right effort, then you have right mindfulness, then you have right Samadhi. In right Samadhi you have Virya. In right effort you have Padana. But in between those, Samasati, you have Atapi, which is keen. So it's kind of that bridge between effort and natural energy of the mind. This is kind of atapi. You are keen, so you are enthusiastic. You're starting to build up the energy. The energy is starting to come, but you're still applying yourself a little bit. Yeah, It's that mixture of, of inspired energy, keenness, and effort all kind of coming together in one thing. Yeah? Atapi. Yeah. So... Um, and the last one is resolute, that is pahitatta. And pahitatta is related to uh, padana. It's a past participle, no, it's a, yeah, pahitat, pahitatta. I think it's a past participle or something like that. Uh, but uh, maybe it's an ad used as an adjective here. Anyway, whatever. It's related to padana. Padana is effort, yeah? So this has to do with uh, being effortful or something like that. Uh, resolute, it says, is a translation here. Translations are a bit, uh, can be varied. Yeah, so it has it ha all of these ideas, and all of these are beautiful ideas. You have to withdraw, huh? and you have to be heedful, careful with how you live, always reflecting carefully, am I doing the right thing here? 
You have to have the keenness, the, the effort and the energy that arises. And then you have to be resolute. You have to keep on applying yourself. It's all very meaningful words. So thank you for uh, pointing that out because normally I'd like to comment on every word, but I, forgot, I simply forgot this morning. So it's good that you um, mentioned this. Okay. Hello, teacher. Hello. <laughs> Can you please share how to apply Yonisomanesikara while, while during meditation? Okay, I can. <laughs> so Yonisomanesikara means like wise attention, yeah, attending uh, with wisdom to what is happening. And uh, what it means, really, it is defined in one of the suttas quite clearly. It's defined in the, um, in the Majjhima number 2, which is the Sabhasava Sutta, the Sutta on all the defilements of the mind. And there it is defined as whenever you apply the mind so that the wholesome qualities increase, then it's called Yoniso Manasikara. If you apply the mind so that the wholesome states decrease or unwholesome states increase, then it's called ayoniso manasikara, wrong, unwise attention. Yeah? So the way it applies wise attention is really just at any time when you are moving in the right direction, that's wise attention. So if you are sitting in your meditation, for example, and you find that suddenly you are fantasizing about all kinds of things, ayoniso manasikara. And you say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm thinking about all this stuff, this nonsense. What happened to my mindfulness? And you think, well, okay, why am I thinking about these things? Oh, it's because I'm attached in this way. Who cares about those things? This is the time to meditate. Chuck it away. You go back to your breath. You become peaceful. That's what it means. Yeah, you reflect on what is going on in the way that leads to peace, leads to quiet, leads to progress in your meditation. Some thought about some person from the past comes up, someone you don't really like or you have problems with, a bit of ill will comes up, think, stop, wait a minute, ill will, okay. Actually, I should have compassion for this person. They have lots of problems or whatever. It goes away. You have a sense of metta and compassion instead. You're already going well in your meditation. You're starting to feel peaceful. It doesn't go any further. Why not? Okay, maybe be, probably because I'm attached to the senses. Yeah, this is kind of a standard reason. This is why everyone is blocked in meditation. Why am I so concerned about this world of the five senses? There's nothing there to be of interest in that world. I don't really need to see anything or hear anything at all. What I want is to be as peaceful as I can. You understand that world is always unreliable, always problematic. So you let go of, of it a little bit more. You become a bit more peaceful. Yonisomanesikara. That is just to give you a rough idea. Yonisomanesikara is something you take with you all the way along the path. From the moment you first set your foot here in the BSV, that's the first Yonisomanesikara, right? I come to the BSV, yay, this is the place to be, Yonisomanesikara, until you become Arahant. Yeah, that's the final kind of Yonisomanesikara, one thing after the other. Ding. Okay.
Dear Ajahn, could you kindly recommend the resources for learning the Pali language? Many thanks. Yeah, can recommend that. Uh, I hope you know what you are in for. Yeah, it's quite hard to learn Pali. I mean, it's not actually that hard. Actually, I'm, I'm, Pali is not such an incredibly difficult language, really. But uh, it, for some people, especially people with that kind of English language background, it can be quite hard because if you're used to English language, English language. People don't learn grammar anymore in the English language, yeah, because it's not taught in English. So you have to learn grammar from scratch, and that can be quite hard. Also, if you come from Chinese background language, yeah, Chinese language is very, very different from Pali. There's, there's not much grammar in Chinese, apparently, whereas in Pali, lots of grammar, yeah. They say that Sanskrit and Chinese are almost diametrically opposed languages uh, because they're very different in the way they are structured. Uh, so if you have a Chinese background, it can be, it's more difficult to learn these things. But if you come from like a German background, uh, I don't know if there are any Germans here. Uh, any German? No Germans here, okay. Or if you come from one of these languages that are very inflected, like a Sinhala background, probably very helpful, yeah, because that is inflected similarly, I understand, to Pali. Or if you come from a Hindi background, probably, actually I don't really know much about Hindi, how it is done these days. But if you come from these backgrounds, we have a heavily inflected language, you have an advantage. Anyways, I'm just saying this, so, you know, you really... Uh, you, you, when you learn Pali, I would I would recommend monastics to do it if they can because uh, it is useful as a monastic. But uh, for lay people, if you're really really keen, yeah, then maybe go for it. Uh, but it's not something I would uh, normally recommend lay people to do because there are more important things to do as lay people. You're already so busy as lay people. You want to kind of save that little time you have to. Close your eyes, sit on the cushion, relax, yeah, be kind, be generous, do all the good things in life. Uh, not spend too much time on intellectual pursuits. If, however, you are the kind of odd person who wants and should learn Pali, <laughs> I'm really trying to put you off here. But uh, uh, I personally, uh, the book that I use, there's a book by A.K. Warder called Introduction to Pali. A.K. Warder, is a, he was a Scottish scholar, and he has written what I find is a very nice book to learn Pali from. Uh, and that's the one I used when I learned Pali. And I was taught Pali by Ajahn Brahm. Yeah, Ajahn Brahm knows Pali. When I was an Agarika at Bodhinata Monastery, I went to Ajahn Brahm's Pali class. And that's how I started on, and I continued ever since. Uh, that's kind of how I started out. Uh, go to that book. There's another book by um, Karunaratna and Gair, I think his name is. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. G-A-R, G-A-I-R, uh, which is called Karunaratna and Gair, but I cannot remember what the Pali, what the name of the book is anymore. That is quite nice as well. And uh, entering the stream, is it? Mm -hmm. Not sure. I can't. Yeah, I can't remember that. Remember that. But anyway, that is also quite nice. Then, if you do use A.K. Warder's book, yeah, I have taught Pali at Bodhinata Monastery for many, many years. And if you go online, you can hear my discussion of A.K. Warder's book. I really recommend that, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> 
No, but it's nice to have someone explain because what you will find if you try to understand actually can be quite hard to read yourself and understand. Uh, so we have lessons, uh, yeah, and I where I explain the idea of the grammar, where I explain the solution to the exercise, these kind of things, and you will find this online. There is a website called Wisdom and Wonders uh, that has all my Pali lessons on there, uh, so you can listen to those. Uh, other people also have that. Uh, there's also a key to the exercises in this book and that key i have written a key myself that's also available online if you look to key to uh, ak order or key to the introduction to Pali or something like that and you put my name in there you will find that as well uh, other people have also done these kind of things but i'm obviously obviously no most I'm, I'm more familiar with what i've done than what other people have done obviously so try something like that. Uh, we have another monk now at Bodhinana Monastery who teaches Pali. His name is Venerable Sunyo. He has stayed at, you know Venerable Sunyo? Yeah, he stayed at NBM for how long? Six months? Yeah, six months. Six months, right. So he is also very, he's one of these, uh, he's got a good brain for Pali and for that kind of thing here. Yeah. So he's great. Uh, so good luck. Uh, and uh, if you find it is too much, uh, don't, you know, I have warned you, so be careful here. Uh, so <laughs> know what is appropriate. Uh. So we have only a couple of more questions to go. Is it possible to follow the Christian tradition and incorporate Buddhist teaching into your life? Yes, it is certainly possible. And uh, so please do so. It is great to... Uh, sometimes it's great to join a little bit. Yeah? Well, everyone can learn something from other traditions. If you are a Buddhist, sometimes you can maybe learn, you can learn a few things from Christianity as well. Uh, sometimes there are beautiful sayings in the Christian tradition that you can use to inspire you. Every tradition has some beautiful things to it. Uh, so we can all learn from each other. So absolutely. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, nice to see you in Melbourne once more. <laughs> Likewise, nice to see you all here. Uh, thank you for teaching us. I recently heard of a friend's friend that is doing research to cure death <laughs> by slowing down and preventing aging. My initial reaction was that it wouldn't solve the suffering itself. However, upon reflection, uh, that Buddha started the noble search for an end to death. I feel like I was quick to judge. I'm curious on what your thoughts are for research like this from a Buddhist, per, yeah, Buddhist perspective, or yeah, yeah, Buddhist. Okay. Also nice to see Ajahn Nisro and Ajahn Sadaro as well. So you are also included in this. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, well, I, I mean, you know, we can, if people are very welcome to try to defeat death, they're not going to, I mean, not, it's impossible anyway to defeat death. You know, you, you, eventually you're going to have to die. You can maybe extend life a little bit or whatever. But I think the idea of ending death, that's kind of, is ridiculous. It's absolutely impossible. So that idea, the problem of death is still going to be there. Maybe you put it off a little bit. Yeah, maybe you can live to 200 years or, or whatever. And then, you know, who knows? Uh, but eventually you're going to have to die. And in the meantime, you have to face all the problems of life anyway. Yeah, still people are still going to die sometimes. They're going to be killed by a car crash or by lightning or by an earthquake. Even if your body could theoretically go longer, eventually you will be killed by something, by other things. So the, the problem hasn't really been solved. Maybe, 
you have a marginally less suffering in your life because you can live longer. Huh? Yeah, but uh, there comes a point when uh, uh, it kind of, uh, you know, it it kind of doesn't make all that much difference. Uh, and imagine that you actually could defeat death. Uh, imagine that you could live forever. Huh? Would that really be a good thing? Yeah. It probably wouldn't, right? It would be. I think it would be awful to live forever. It would be a worse. It would be the greatest curse you could possibly have to live forever. And sometimes you read this kind of science fiction books which has these ideas. And I think a lot of these science fiction writers, they, they quite correctly point out this is the worst curse you can have to go on forever. In one way, we should be... Maybe we should be glad there is death, yeah, because then you kind of you can okay, you can clear out that life and you can kind of start a little bit afresh, even though it is an illusion because you're not really starting afresh at all. Huh? But living forever would be absolutely terrible. On and on, what are you going to do after a while? <laughs> you've seen everything, you've done everything that possibly can be done. You tasted every possible kind of food. You have. And you've done it a million times, and you have been married a billion times, and had a billion children, and you can remember it all. Wow, absolutely awful. I, you know, it's really so. At that point, it becomes a curse. And sometimes I think we need to remember these things and to really reflect properly about these things and to understand that actually there is no solution to this. And this idea of prolonging life and cheating death, I think people don't really know what they're doing. Yeah, it's kind of this blindness. The underlying problem is still there. The Buddhist path is still going to be valid. Yeah, you can't get rid of the Buddhist path that easily, you know. <laughs> Buddhism is still going to be very, have a very important um, place in our lives uh, because uh, this is always going to be an issue. Uh, sometimes uh, you hear about these people who freeze their body. Have you heard about those people? They cryogenically freeze the body and then they say they're going to be revived in 500 years or 200 years or 100 years or whatever when they have the technology to kind of re-arise the body. But uh, either it is not going to work. Yeah, the body is dead anyway. The consciousness has left the body so it's not going to work anyway. Or what if it does work? What if your consciousness still is attached to that body? So when it is revived, you actually come back. What kind of hell realm is that? When your body is freezed down to 160 degrees, your consciousness is still attached to that. I sometimes people don't know what they're doing. Maybe they're kind of putting themselves into this super cold hell. Maybe that's what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I really, I really don't know what is happening there. To me, it sounds like it sounds like very dangerous ideas that sometimes people have, and uh, and the problem is we don't understand consciousness. We don't understand the relationship of the body to the mind. This is one of the biggest problems in the Western world, especially. And I think this is what is changing now very rapidly. And as we start to understand these things, we will actually have very different ideas about what is the appropriate thing to do and how to live and all of these kind of things. Anyway, enough comments on that. We come to the last question for tonight. In the introductory section, a session you mentioned some teachings for allowing the meditation to happen versus doing the meditation uh, this is something i struggle with myself uh, are there any suttas that deal with this topic um the suttas 
just say that uh, meditation cannot be done through an act of will. Yeah, but just say that. Uh, the suttas say you should give rise to mindfulness before you meditate. Yeah, but they don't really give any detailed explanation of how to get rid of the will. Well, they do, but that explanation is just the Eightfold Path. The way to get rid of the will, the way to do less, is actually to practice the Noble Eightfold Path. And if you practice kindness, and if you practice caring for other people and yourself and all these things, the will will actually go down. The will will go down because your sense of self will become less. Yeah. Um, all of these things, being kind, actually undermines your sense of self because you cannot do those things that the self wants to do. The self wants to defend itself by saying things. Actually, no, you're suppressing all of that. So actually, just practicing the Eightfold Path will lead to a reduction in that will. Yeah, That is part of the practice. So just focus more on kindness. Focus more on thinking kind thoughts to other people. Focus more on overcoming the ill will and the negativity in your mind. That will actually lead to, gradually, gradually, to a reduction in doing in your meditation practice. Sometimes these things come from completely different areas than you would have thought. But then try those ideas that I mentioned. Yeah? The idea of uh, try the death contemplation. Yeah? Faced with death, there's nothing to be done. Yeah, I'm going to die. If you're going to die in two hours, what are you going to do? There's nothing more to do. You just lie there. You are awake. Nothing to be done. No willpower. You just enjoy the journey. Yeah. Try the idea, as I mentioned before. Another way you can do this is to think of what happens before you go to sleep. Yeah, when you go to sleep, you find that you cannot will yourself to sleep. Yeah, oh, I want to sleep. You know what it's like sometimes if you really try to sleep really hard, it's not going to happen. Yeah, so what you have to do is just have to relax. And then when you don't will, when you finally let go of everything, that's when you fall asleep. So it's a similar kind of thing. Yeah, with meditation, it's similar to falling asleep. You have to let go of the willing, the trying. Ajahn Brahm tells me that he goes to sleep. Usually he, he, he kind of is there, he lies down on his pillow, bang, sleeps straight away. Yeah? Straight away. Yeah? And, and that's kind of extraordinary. Most people, many people struggle with falling asleep, at least sometimes, maybe not always, but at least sometimes. Ajahn Brahm puts his head on the pillow, bang, he goes to sleep. Why is that? Because no will. Yeah, there's nothing there to disturb him. Uh, he just <laughs> He's out like a candle, just like that. Uh, and that's exactly the same thing with his meditation practice. Yeah, He sits down, closes his eyes, uh, lets go of everything, bang, goes into deep meditation. It's exactly the same thing. The difference between going asleep and meditation is just that in one sense, you, you just direct your mind slightly differently. Yeah, one you direct it towards letting go completely, the other one you are still have the awareness there. That's the only difference really. So it's similar to falling asleep. So reflect on that. What do you do when you fall asleep? What do you do when you really relax after a long day's work? And if you get that idea, yeah, then you have some idea of what meditation is about as well. Letting go in a deep way. Yeah. Okay. That's the last question for tonight. Thank you for all these marvelous questions. Please keep them coming here. And that is all for tonight. Have a good night's sleep. May you fall asleep as soon as you hit the pillow. <laughs> Bang! <laughs> See what happens. Uh, before we go, let's just pay homage to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, do the Arahang Sama Sambuddha together.